All right, welcome back to the final week of this series that we have called First Comes Love, where we've been talking about relationships, right? Uh, if you've here, you've been watching online, uh, you know that we've taken the old nursery rhyme, you know, Ben and Allie sing and sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby in a baby carriage. We've been looking at every single phase of that nursery rhyme through the lens of what does Jesus have to say about this? And if I were to listen to him, would it give me a better life? And today we're actually on the final line, the final phase of that nursery rhyme. Then comes a baby in a baby carriage. We're talking about parenting. Now, right off the bat, I want you to hear today we're actually going to be talking less about how to parent, and we're going to be talking more about how to view ourselves as parents. In fact, we'll be talking more about our relationship to our own parents then we will be talking about our relationship to our kids. And so even if you are watching this and you're not currently a parent, I still think you're gonna get something out of this truth from Jesus today. So throughout today, if you, if you don't you know, have kids, you're not a parent yet, anytime I talk about parenting or give the example of parenting, just replace it with anything else in your life that makes you feel completely overwhelmed, right? Today is really for any of us who feel inadequate, ill-equipped, or too damaged to face whatever it is we're facing. Since we are zooming in on parenting though, got a question for the parents. Do you ever have those moments where you're tucking the kids into bed, at, uh, into bed at night, or maybe your kids are older and so they've just run off and slammed the door angrily on you, but the day is over and you collapse into your couch and you're pretty sure that you have irreparably damaged your kids that day, right? I have this all the time. In fact, just the other day, Allie, my wife, she asked Micah, our five-year-old, she goes, do you remember anything about the house that we moved out of just a little over a year ago? And Micah goes, yeah, I remember being yelled at in the dining room for not eating spaghetti. I remember being yelled at in the backyard and it was all negative stuff. And Allie and I, of course, are like, what have we done to this poor child? I, I don't know about you, but I've read books on parenting. I've talked to counselors about it. I've commiserated with friends. And still at the end of the day, I feel like I'm just gambling. I'm making stuff up as I go. I'm throwing the dice with my kids every single day, right? Like maybe this is like a good healthy version of discipline. Or maybe, you know, maybe this is like a battle I should fight with my two-year-old daughter. I have no idea. You know, so I'm basically like, I'll discover if my parenting style works when my kids are adults. And until then, I'm just gambling. And for me, at least, most of my parent gambling attitude stems from deep feelings of inadequacy around being a parent. You know, why did God give me these kids if, if he knew I was gonna screw them up? Or what if I'm actually like a trash dad and they're gonna grow up and resent me? At the end of the day, I feel unsure of who I am as their parent which leads to unsure parenting. And that's what I wanna talk about today. I wanna to ask the question, do we know who we are as parents? To do that, I actually wanna jump right into the Bible. And I actually wanna pick up right where we left off last week. All right, if you remember from last week, in Matthew 19, Jesus talked about gender, marriage, divorce, adultery, remarriage, being single, and even castration, LOLs. <laughs> uh, he talked about all of that in just a few short verses. It was a very heavy, very difficult conversation that Jesus had. At the same time, though, Jesus was leveling the playing field like we talked about last week. He was taking the men down a peg and elevating and dignifying the women, and he was taking married couples down a peg and elevating and dignifying single people. And so Jesus was being really, really good to people, even though it was a difficult conversation. But at the same time, he had to know that he was poking at old wounds. 
right? And he had to know that he was digging up baggage out of people's pasts. He had to know that the talk landed heavily on people. And so what does Jesus do immediately after that difficult conversation? That's where I wanna pick up. This is exactly where we left off last week. Matthew 19, three. Then little children, children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. Gotta remember the crowd from last week, all right? The crowd that Jesus is speaking to is filled with wrongfully divorced women who are struggling to survive in a society that said they were used goods. And that also means the crowd was filled with kids who were suffering. They were suffering from all those wrongful divorces. So some of these kids, you gotta picture it. Some of these kids are holding mom's hand, right? And they have tears in their eyes because mom got kicked to the curb three years ago and they got kicked to the curb with her. Other kids are holding dad's hand and they have tears in their eyes because dad divorced mom before they were even old enough to remember like how she looked and the way her voice sounded and the way she smelled. And so right after Jesus taught on the importance of marriage and the damage of divorce, almost naturally, like one living organism, the crowd begins bringing their broken, hurting kids to Jesus. Jesus, could you please pray over my son or pray over my daughter? The talk that you just gave landed really hard on them. And so Jesus is comforting these kids, these children who have been silently suffering the fallout from their culture's view of marriage. But the disciples, who always think and always assume that they know exactly what Jesus wants and exactly what Jesus needs, they interrupt, and the disciples rebuked those who brought them to him. So Jesus' closest friends don't have the tender heart that Jesus does, not yet at least. So they step in, they're like, back, scoot back, scoot back, right? Jesus doesn't have time for your little kids. And then Jesus interrupts them, and he says this. He goes, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And then I imagine Jesus like looking at one of these kids like right in the eye and looking down into their soul. And he says, don't hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Again, just like we talked about last week, Jesus is leveling the playing field again. He's knocking the adults down a peg and he's elevating and he's dignifying the kids in the crowd. He looks at these kids who view themselves as kicked to the curb by dad or damaged goods because they never got to know mom. And he looks at them and he tells them that the kingdom of heaven which is Jesus speak for a new, better, more abundant life with God and others. He says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Kingdom of heaven belongs to these kids. And then verse 15, when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Jesus would not leave that crowd and move on to the next thing, not until he had comforted and encouraged every kid in the crowd, not until he looked every single one of them in the eyes individually and he affirmed their unique existence and importance in the kingdom of God. And there's something about that that when I was reading that earlier this week, like I got kind of choked up. It's like we have a God who's so unfathomably good, but he's also sensitive to, and tender toward human suffering. And so Jesus basically refused to put his sandals back on until he personally confronted and comforted the pain in every single one of those kids' hearts. If Jesus is who he says he is, He says he's the son of God. He is God with skin on. If he is who he says he is, isn't that the kind of Jesus we want? It's a Jesus who always tells the truth, even when it's difficult and even when it's hard, but he understands it's hard and he understands it hurts. And so he gives us grace and encouragement, puts his finger under our chins and he raises our head back to dignity. We don't deserve a God that good, but he is the God that we have. Now, Jesus acknowledges and he comforts every kid in the crowd, partly because he knew that sometimes truth hurts and so he's taking good care of these kids. But on top of that, 
I can't help but wonder if Jesus was actually inducing culture shock, like we talked about last week, inducing culture shock one more time in that crowd before he hits the road. When Jesus just said the kingdom of heaven belongs to children like this, I can't help but wonder if some of the Jewish people in that crowd thought to themselves, well, Jesus, maybe some of these kids, right? Like maybe that kid over there or that kid way back there because their parents are still together. But the kingdom of heaven cannot belong to the rest of these kids because their parents are divorced and their homes and lives are absolute train wrecks. And the reason they might have that thought running through their head is because of a theology, a way of thinking about God that they had invented and created called generational curses. For a minute, I wanna dig into some Old Testament history together. I promise I'll tie this back in, all right? Do you trust me? I promise I will, (laughs) okay? This idea of generational curses, you can't find it in the Bible. It was a theology that the Jewish people had invented, but they based it on a verse found in the 10 commandments, which goes like this. God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waves below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. We don't like that part. Oh wait, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. We like that part, right? That's the original commandment. Okay, but then over generations and thousands of years, the Israelite people probably unintentionally distorted that commandment to mean something entirely different. And they distorted it in two big ways. I wanna explain them to you. The first way they distorted that commandment is they took the primary application of it and they changed it from a national commandment to a personal commandment. What I mean by that is that, that rule of life is a good way to live life. You know, don't make an idol. Don't go home tonight and carve something out of wood and then bow down and worship it. That would be silly. So you can personally apply it, but originally it was supposed to be nationally applied. What God was basically saying is, I'm gonna make you, the Israelites, into a nation. And when I do that, if you want things to go well, then you need to worship me and me alone. Do not build idols or shrines or temples in Israel to dedicate to false gods. Don't do it. If you do, I'll get jealous. And that's what the whole punishing the children for the sins of the father thing means. God is saying, if your future kings and leaders, your national fathers, if they go and screw up this whole idol worship thing, then all of the other citizens of Israel, the children, are the ones who are gonna have to pay for it. And then if you read the Old Testament, there are entire books dedicated to proving that that was exactly the case. A bad king builds idols and shrines, a bad father. And then the nation of Israel, the children, are invaded by enemies and they're punished. And then a new good king, a good father, he comes in and he tears the shrines down and the nation of Israel, the children, enjoy peace and prosperity. This was primarily a commandment for a nation. But over generations, the Israelites began to apply it to families. So they began to say, no, actually, if a literal father sins then his literal children will be punished and cursed by God because of the sins of their dad. That's no good. He wasn't talking about literal fathers and literal children. Second way they distorted it is this. They took the commandment and they took the numbers of generations and they made it literal, right? So God was actually not saying, hey guys, my hands are tied, all right? So if you screw up, exactly three to four generations of your family will be punished. And if you don't screw up, exactly 1,000 of your generations on the nose will be blessed. He's not trying to be literal. He's trying to be metaphorical. 
What he's trying to say is, I hope to bless, I desire to bless and love the nation of Israel way more, like a thousand times more than I desire to punish and discipline them. But again, somewhere along the way, it got distorted. And so the Israelite people took the commandment personally and literally. And they said that if a dad sins, then exactly three to four generations, so his kids, his grandkids, and his great-grandkids would be hopelessly doomed and cursed to punishment by God. That is how the Israelites ended up creating a backwards false theology called generational curses. This is why... Back in Matthew 19, when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven belongs to these kids, the crowd would have scratched their head and gone, yeah, but Jesus, what about the generational curse that they're under? Now, hang with me. We're almost to the part where we apply this to ourselves. But first, we've got to understand that that this backwards theology of generational curses, it was actually so prevalent and so socially burdensome to the Israelites that even before Jesus, God had used his prophets several times to try to refute this false belief. Here's an example of one of those moments. It's in Ezekiel, and God says this. He goes, what do you mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? And the proverb goes like this. The fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So they even had a cute little catchphrase for God cursing generations of children. Their phrase was, the father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the father does something dumb and stupid and the children get punished by God. But God just said, why do you even have this proverb? Why are you you saying this about me? And then he sets them straight. He goes, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. Why? Well, because every living soul belongs to me. The father as well as the son, both alike belong to me. And the soul who sins is the one who will die. The soul who sins is the one who will have to reap the consequences. The son will not share the guilt of the father and the father will not share the guilt of the son. Instead, the righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him and him alone. And the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him and him alone. And then shortly after that, God says this, He says, instead of children saying to themselves, well, I'm cursed because dad was an idiot, instead, do this, repent. That means change your mind and change your life's direction. Repent, turn away from all of your offenses, and then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. God says, don't view yourself as cursed because of your mom and dad's actions. Instead, get a new heart and get a new spirit. Turn away from, repent from the way that mom and dad lived. And if you do that, their sin won't end up being your downfall. God is saying that the concept of generational curses is baloney, all right? It's simply not true. All right, now, what in the world does all of that Old Testament history (laughs) have to do with us as parents in the 21st century? Well, actually, I think a lot. See, it's easy for us to kind of chuckle and like roll our eyes at ancient Israel's idea of generational curses, right? Hindsight's 2020, so we can look at the Jewish people of Jesus's time and we're like, how did they ever fall for the idea of generational curses? God even sets them straight multiple times and they just don't get it. But before we get cocky, We might not be familiar with the whole sour grapes proverb, but we have a different, socially powerful, enslaving proverb of our own, and it means the same thing. Our proverb sounds like this. 
like father, like son. Of course, this applies to mothers and daughters too, but usually that's the way we hear the phrase, right? Like father, like son. We know what it means. Sometimes this, this proverb of ours is applied lightheartedly. Right? An example of this is I'll catch myself sitting in chairs exactly like my dad. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. The chair is sideways and I'm cross-legged and I've got my arm over the back of it. It's not a conscious thought. I'll just catch myself doing it and the thought in my mind is like father, like son. So sometimes we apply it lightheartedly, but then other times this proverb of ours carries a weight to it that is no different than generational curses. How many of us feel trapped by that concept of like father, like son, or like mother, like daughter. Dad was an alcoholic, and so I'll probably just turn out to be the same. It's only a matter of time because, you know, like father, like son. Mom was abusive, and I would probably end up being abusive too. I should probably never have kids because, you know, like mother, like daughter. I'm hopeless to follow in my parents' footsteps. I'm trapped in their shadow. How many of us have had that proverb weaponized against us? Someone looked at us and went, you're just a chip off the old block. It was a negative thing. They meant you're an angry person because your mom was an angry person. Or maybe mom herself used this proverb to guilt you into behaving. You know, don't be like your father. You're just like your father. And we still feel like the emotional gut punch of that as if she said it today. How many of us are allowing that lie? Like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. How many of us are allowing that lie to shape how we view ourselves? to shape how we parent our own kids? How many of us have had the thought enter our heads after a bad day with our kids where we think to ourselves like, I'm just screwing my kids up, but that's because my parents screwed me up. It's hopeless. I've been there. I really have. I have a great mom and dad, right? They're, they're amazing. They're still amazing. I'm in like deep relationship with them still to this day. At the same time, no child leaves the house without wounds. None of them do. And the wounds that I left with are perfectionism and anger, but very short fuse. I grew up in an environment where I believed that if you were going to do something or do anything, you had better do it right, and you better do it right the very first time. There were strict expectations set in my household and clear, like, unbudging punishments anytime you didn't meet those expectations. On top of that, my dad who has changed greatly and gracefully with age. So if any of you actually know him today, you might be surprised to hear this about him, but the dad I grew up with had a really short fuse. It did not take much to make him angry. And then when he got angry, you could feel it, you know, like through his eyes and through his voice, like in this way that was burning and scary. Now, I love my dad. I've worked through that with him as an adult now. I even got permission from him to kind of share some of this stuff. But again, no one leaves the house without wounds, and those are mine. And now I see those things, perfectionism and anger in the way that I parent. I'm deeply ashamed to say this, but my kids in the past have seen me punch holes through drywall because I'm just, I'm stressed about being financially strapped or I'm angry about something dumb that happened at work. My kids have seen anger in me in a way that I didn't even see in my dad growing up. 
I'm also watching myself set expectations that are way too high for my kids, and I'm watching myself being solid and unmoving in my discipline when they don't meet those expectations. I can see that I'm rarely teaching my kids through my actions what I love teaching from this stage through my words which is that God is a God of endless second chances and forgiveness and mercy and grace are the most powerful gifts he's ever given us. I teach that here and then I go home and it's just do it right, do it right the first time and there are consequences if you don't. And I want to parent differently. But if I'm being totally honest with you, sometimes I feel stuck. Why? Well, sour grapes, like father, like son. Does anyone else feel that way or am I crazy? Okay, thank you. Does anyone else feel like you're doomed to repeat the sins and patterns of your parents? Does, does anyone feel like, just like Ezekiel said, it's like I gotta have a completely new spirit and mind and heart if I'm ever gonna be able to parent my kids in a new and better way. And if you do feel like that, what do we do? Well, I want you to, in your imagination right now, go back to Matthew 19. Right? Remember, Jesus is raising the heads of those little kids in dignity, and he's telling the adults in the crowd that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those kids. And remember, the crowd is probably thinking, well, Jesus, not that kid, right? Because of generational curses, like father, like son. And I wonder if, in that moment, Jesus was thinking about something. I wonder if, in that moment, Jesus was thinking about how a whole new way of life was about to be available to these kids after he was gonna do what he was gonna do in a few weeks. Jesus knew that in just a few weeks, his death on a cross would make forgiveness possible for those kids and for you and me. Jesus knew that three days after he died, when he was resurrected, that would make it possible for those kids and for you and me to become new creations, have new hearts, new spirits, new minds, just like Ezekiel says we need. What do I mean by that? 2 Corinthians tells us this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you are now a new creation, right? The old version of you has gone and the new one has come. How is that possible? Well, it's because God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Okay, so we've been forgiven and that forgiveness has turned us into new creations. We have been changed in the eyes of God. Later, though, in the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us that even though we've been changed in the eyes of God, it will take time for us to start living like we've changed. That's why Paul says this. He goes, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and you were taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and you were taught to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so we have been turned into something new in the eyes of God, but it might take a while for us to look new to our own eyes. It will take time for us eventually to live in a new way. And so the big question just boils down to, if we put our faith in Jesus, what becomes new about us? What turns immediately, drastically different about us? What changes overnight? And that is actually one of the biggest most fundamental, most spiritually groundbreaking things that happens to us the moment we place our faith and trust in Jesus. To all who received him, to those who believed in Jesus's name, he gave the right to overnight become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. 
when Jesus is comforting those kids in Matthew 19, he knew that all of that was going to happen in a few weeks. He knew that through his upcoming death and his resurrection, if these little kids put their faith in him, they would no longer be their father's sons and they would no longer be their mother's daughters. Instead, they would become children of God. They would become the sons and daughters of the living God. Remember I said that today we were gonna talk less about how to parent and more about how to view ourselves as parents. If we understand what Jesus has done for us, this means there is a whole new meaning to the phrase like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. Because we are told that in and through Jesus, we have a new father and our new father is the God of the universe. We can take that old defeating phrase like father, like son, and we can change it to something of dignity and power. We can hold our heads high and say confidently like father, like son, and like father, like daughter, our father, being God. And again, it might take time for us to actually start living like it, but the reality is we are children of God. And for us to start living like it or parenting like it, we need to do what Paul said. We need to be made new in the attitude of our minds. We need to have a correct view of ourselves and a correct view of myself personally is that beginning with a prayer that I said in Can and Mine Coffee on Public Street in 2010, beginning the moment I put my faith in Jesus, I, in that moment, was no longer Dan and Amy's kid. I had become a son of God. And you are no longer your father's son. You're no longer your mother's daughter. You have given the right to become children of God. And if that's true, it means we are no longer doomed to make the same exact mistakes that with our kids that our parents made with us, we no longer have to be slaves to generational patterns and sin within our family trees. Why? Because we're in a new family tree now and we have a perfect father that we can learn from and follow. There are patterns that run so deeply in our families. We've seen it, we've been a part of it. Anger and abuse, divorce, isolation, manipulation, addiction, abandonment, you name it. Jesus says, you don't have to be a slave to those patterns anymore. Jesus says, through me, you can be the one who says, no more drug abuse in this family. No more rage. No more emotional manipulation. It stops here. It stops with me. Why? Because you are no longer your mom and dad's kid. You are a child of God and he wants good for you and your family. With Jesus in your life, you have the ability to change generational patterns and to say confidently, like father, like son, that's how I'm gonna parent. Like father, like daughter, that's how I'm gonna parent. I'm gonna parent like my true and perfect father, God. And the more we allow Jesus to change our lives, the more we allow him to change our lives, the more our kids' lives will be changed in the process. The further we remove ourselves from the idea that we're doomed to repeat our parents' mistakes, the further our kids are removed from those same generational patterns of sin. And it means that every single time you say, my mom abused pills, but I'm not gonna do that, what you're saying to your kid is I'm a daughter of God and this is how my true father would lead his family. And anytime you say, dad bailed on me, but I'm not gonna do that to my kids, What you're saying to your kids is, I'm a son of God. I'm not gonna bail on you. My dad did, but my true father didn't. It means that with Jesus working in me, I have a shot 
at raising my kids in a home that values grace over getting stuff right. And it means that it's actually possible for me as a dad to lean on my father, God, in such a way that hopefully one day, I hope this, when my kids think of grace, they think of Jesus and they picture me. Or they think of me and they picture Jesus. Why? Well, because like father, like son, and God is my father. Ben Foote is not primarily a dad, primarily a husband or a pastor or a friend. Instead, Ben Foote is primarily a son of God. And if I can parent out of that place, I have a chance to break generational patterns of sin in my family. For those of us who are our parents, okay, we could have spent today talking about tips and strategies. We could have talked about how to handle a toddler's meltdown. Actually, I, we couldn't talk about that because I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> we could have talked about how to navigate the internet and smartphones with your teenagers. But ultimately, I believe all of those parenting strategies are a total wash if we don't know who we are. Ultimately, I believe the number one thing you can do as a parent is to remember whose kid you are. If we can truly grasp that down in our hearts and our minds and our spirits, then maybe we have a shot at leading our families well. But again, it starts with being made new in the attitude of our minds, like Paul said. It starts with every day waking up and remembering, I'm a son of God, I'm a daughter of God. That is the first family I belong to. And so throughout this week, let's try something. All right? Anyone can try this, parent, not parent, adult, kid. All right? This week, let's try something simple. It is an exercise in having new attitudes of the mind. All right, so this week, anytime you screw up, maybe you screw up as a parent, you screw up in school, whatever, instead of spiraling into defeat, all right, instead of brushing it under the rug and just hoping to go to bed and wake up and start fresh, instead pause and remind yourself that you are a son or a daughter of God and your father is the spitting image of grace. It means when you screw up, he's not out to punish you. He's out to put his arm around you, tell you he forgives you and then help you learn from your mistakes like a good dad. And then this week, anytime you have a win, maybe you have a parent win, pause. All right? Don't just rush off to the next thing. Pause and remind yourself that you are a son or a daughter of God and you just parented in a way that would make dad proud. Give yourself a chance to celebrate some wins. Give yourself the exercise of having a new attitude of your mind. We are not doomed. We're not doomed to to recreate the same mistakes our parents made with us. Our kids are not doomed. Your kids are not doomed because fate gave them you as their mom or their dad. Why? Because Jesus has given us the right to become children of God. And so we have a perfect dad that we can be following and learning from. So now here's how I wanna end this today. I'm gonna ask that everyone close their eyes. So in a minute, we're gonna sing two songs. All right, the first song is called The Blessing. Don't have to sing along with it if you don't want to. We kind of view this song almost like a gift from our staff family to you and your families. This song is basically a prayer that we are praying over you and your kids and your kids' kids. The second song that we're gonna sing is our chance to stand and declare the truth that we are no longer slaves to patterns of sin that have poisoned our last names for generations. We're no longer slaves to that because we're children of God. But before we sing together, I want you to calm yourself right now and I want you to think. Specifically, I want you to think of the different ways that you have uttered the defeating words like father, like son. 
like mother, like daughter. Think about that right now. In what ways have you told yourself or in what ways have you been told by others that you are ill-equipped, unprepared, inadequate, or too damaged for the task at hand, whether that's parenting or marriage or your career or your school, you name it. Maybe you've told yourself you're not smart enough because your family always did poorly in school or maybe you're the only one without a college degree. Maybe you've told yourself you're too damaged because you grew up in a broken, scary, unpredictable home. Maybe you told yourself you're unlovable because mom or dad or both bailed on you before you even got to know them. In what ways have you told yourself, I am doomed to repeat what I've learned from my parents because after all, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. And just for a moment, I want you to feel the weight of those lies that you have carried around for so long. And now I want you to picture Jesus. I want you to picture Jesus lifting your head in dignity, just like he did with that, the kids in that crowd 2,000 years ago. And I want you to picture Jesus looking you in the eyes and saying these words to you right now. Revelation 21, he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. It's done. I'm the alpha, I'm the omega, I'm the beginning and the end, and I will be your God, and you will be my sons and daughters. Romans 8, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him, by Jesus, we can look at God and cry, Abba, which means Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 1 John 3, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is exactly what you are. As we sing these next two songs and march out into our next week, let that truth sink in. Let that identity take root in your life. You are sons and daughters of the living God. God, so a lot of us are carrying baggage around. A lot of us are carrying the weight of lies that we've told ourselves for decades and decades. We're doomed. We're doomed to repeat the same thing our parents did or we're doomed to become our parents. God, for a lot of us, that's really weighed us down. We just don't see how life could be possible not turning out to be like that. God, I'm praying right now that you let the truth that you speak through Jesus sink into our hearts right now. God, please let it sink into our hearts. We may have grown up in one way in this home with this mom or with this dad, but we are no longer our father's sons and we are no longer our mother's daughters. We are children of God. We are sons and daughters of the living God. God, would you let that truth sink down into our hearts? Would you let it form and shape our hearts and our spirits and our minds like you talked about in Ezekiel? God, would you give us a new life through that lens? Would you help us to wake up every morning and remember, I'm a son of God or I'm a daughter of the living God. Would you help us to live out of that? God, for anyone who's listening to this talk right now and this has brought up pain or it's brought up some baggage from the past that they didn't wanna think about, God, would you be close to those people? Would you comfort them? And then ultimately, God, would you please let us live out of the truth that we are your children first and foremost. God, would you take care of us like a really good dad? 
And the reason I can pray that in confidence, knowing that you keep your promises, is because of your first son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on a cross 2,000 years ago. And I thank you so much for him. And it's in his holy name that I pray right now. Amen.